Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by our own Tim Miller, who is telling us all to brace ourselves for the coming shit show out of uh, Arizona. So, first of all, good morning, Tim. Good morning, Charlie. I mean, we always have to be bracing, I guess. So, you know, it's a sort of dog bites man warning. So we, we need a couple of palate cleansers, or at least one palate <laughs> okay. cleanser. I, I was actually going to play Marjorie Taylor Greene um, discovering the Holocaust, which is like, that she, I mean, she has that little press conference to say, hey, guys, uh, I have to tell you, I just went to the Holocaust Museum and this thing was really <laughs> bad. This thing is actually worse than having to wear masks. And <laughs> okay, so wait till she sees roots. I'm just saying that this this woman... Somebody's going to give her a book, a history book, and it's going to be like, you are not going to believe what I just really? Yeah. Do you know that they murdered millions of Jews and not just Jews, other people, which is worse than mask mandates, says a woman who is a congresswoman of the United States. Who was on the education committee, you know. And is, and is railing what? against our, you know, obviously what's happening in our schools is just really, really a problem. I mean, giving people yeah. different different perspectives on on history is obviously a concern since, since things are going so well in the North Georgia school system as it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure things are going very well in the North. Well, at least they don't teach critical race theory or anything. Okay, so, so here's the, the actual palate cleanser. This is a news report of one of the um, uh, rioters who was charged uh, from, from January 6th. And I'm going to play the whole thing, but you have to wait. It's about halfway through. You get the, get the really reveal of exactly how sophisticated this guy is about politics. Okay? I'm excited. So, let's, yeah, let's, let's just play this. Jason Riddle is still working on the details of his campaign. I guess let's get back to work. I guess that should be the, the slogan I'm going to go with. You might remember Riddle after seeing this photo. He's the man from Keene, New Hampshire, who admitted to entering the Capitol building on January 6th and chugging from a bottle of wine he found in a lawmaker's office. In the long run... If you're running for office, I guess any attention is good attention, so I think it'll help me. Riddle says he received death threats after his involvement in the riots was made public. But he says he's also heard from a lot of people asking him to run for an elected position. What does being at the riots do for your campaign? Tells him I show up. I'm going to actually keep my promises and, and um, show up, make some changes. He says he's running against Democrat Annie Custer in the 2022 midterm elections. Wait, Custer wait is it. currently in her fifth term as a U.S. Congresswoman representing New Hampshire's 2nd District. I thought Ann was a state representative. No. <laughs> so a state rep is in the in the state house in Concord. Yeah, that's what Ann is. No, no, no. She's in Washington. Oh, well, I guess I got to run against that then. So Washington it is. The problem He's right now, though, is that Riddle bridge, is prohibited probably. from D.C. while he faces several misdemeanor charges for his alleged role in the riots. Despite my ongoing legal problems, I'm supposed to live my life how I want to live it. And uh, it's something I want to do. So why not do it? <laughs> it's a, so really, she's she's a congresswoman, not a state rep. Huh? I have to run for that then. You it's laugh now, but that's the 2028 Republican nominee right there, Charlie. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no reason why he can't be in that caucus with Marjorie mm -hmm. Taylor Greene. Whittle, he finds out about the Holocaust. I mean, really? But that's <laughs> that That was my my second favorite part of the interview. My my other favorite part was, so how does, <laughs> I love the question. So how does showing up at a riot um, help you in your campaign? Well, it tells people that I show up. I mean, you just he had that as I will. People are breaking windows, throwing shit on the wall. I am there. I am there for that. 
Okay. The so wine theft also seems to be a pretty, um, you know, pretty incriminating. You know, I'm not a prosecutor, but chugging no. from chugging from a stolen bottle of wine inside a member of Congress's <laughs> office seems that, to be open and shut case. No, that's going to be an ad. That that will be one of his campaign ads. So and so claim it was AOC's wine. So and so shows up and seizes the opportunity, and the guy's gonna. He, he might win. You just never know if he figures out which 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 race he's running for. He just you know has to decide. I mean, I think Mega, Alabama too might have been a better bet for him than New Hampshire too. But you know, ooh, who knows? okay, that was that was cold. That was cold. we we probably have. A few listeners from Alabama who are just going, okay, I'm, I'm, I am Stokes, going to fire I'm off at. a sternly worded email to you bulwark people who have disrespected Alabama, which is about to send Mo Brooks to the United States Senate. So, <laughs> so you folks in Alabama, just like, you might want to save it. You just might, might want to press delete on that. Okay, so since we've done our Alabama thing, let's talk about Arizona Bees. You had a piece that I think is ahead of the curve and people are going to go, okay, it's not going to be that bad. But how often have we heard this? So let, let's let talk about your piece in the bulwark this morning that essentially says people need to brace themselves for the shitstorm that will follow the Arizona recount. Tim Miller, yeah, how bad, you know, look, how bad talk, is it going to be? I mean, we don't know exactly how bad it's going to be, but it, 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 it has the opportunity bad. for being bad for sure. You know, and, and I think that there is – uh, you know, I was getting this deja vu all over again feeling about the time between, you know, November and January 6th, where, you know, you vacillate between these guys are the Keystone cops, like this is so shambolic and preposterous, like how could anybody take this seriously? And, you know, then you sort of, you read and, and watch, you know, what is, how this is being covered inside MAGA environs, and, and all of a sudden you think, ah, there's really something here to be concerned about. Uh, you know, I was the, the woman, the woman that jumped out at me was the woman who is a, you know, a precinct officer, um, at the, at the Arizona Republican party, uh, in Virginia, Gail Golick, who is now traveling around the country. She's quit her job as a real estate agent. She has a YouTube feed. People are following her. I, you know, this is not nor this is not normal, right? This is not just your average, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of crazy person. Like this is a this is a you know sort of uh, suburban mother who is quitting her job in order to dedicate herself to this. I mean, they're filling up that stadium, um, not filling it up, but I, you know, and there's a significant there you know significant number of people in that stadium participating in this recount. Um, OAN is serving the role of Newsmax this time and kind of covering it with a lot of faux seriousness. So people want to get into it. Bannon on his podcast is covering it very seriously. And it, it does not qu- quite have the heat of, yeah. of what we saw in Georgia in December, um, you know, because there isn't a sitting president of the United States stirring it up. But but a lot of the other elements of what was happening before January 6th was there. And I started thinking to myself before I wrote this, as I was reading that Arizona Republic is doing a great job covering this. And I was reading through all of their coverage of it. And I was like, 
you know, like what is the plan right now for all of the other, uh, you know, the, all of the, you know, Mitch McConnell style Republicans for when this comes out? Because eventually they are going to, re- re- you know, release some sort of report. It's hard to imagine that the report is going to say that Donald Trump lost. And there is going to be a significant number of people that think this is, again, the first domino to fall for Trump's reinstatement in August. And, and you know, when nothing happens, um, they're going to, again, I, I think we're going to be once again in a powder keg type situation. So what, what will Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy do? Will they just sort of pretend on the one hand that it's not really happening, but find a way never to push back on it and denounce it? I mean, is, yeah, that, the, I, is that the eternal reoccurrence? By the way, kudos for starting your piece with a quote from Nietzsche. Yeah, of course. Was, you know, I got to keep people on their toes. Um, yeah, this, this, uh, is not, this is not the Daily Wire people. We quote Nietzsche. <laughs> I, have a, really. I have some Daily Wire. I've been also reading the Daily Wire lately, so I've got some thoughts on that. Um, the internal recurrence, uh, I, I think so. I, right, and look what happened before, again, January 6th. Mitch largely, you know, kept his head in his turtle shell, right? Yeah. I mean, he really didn't, didn't you know, sort of – um, go along with Trump's nonsense uh, publicly, you know, right? He didn't do anything to push back on it. He didn't do anything to stop it. His his super PAC was still supporting the pro-coup candidates in the Georgia runoff, but, but personally, he didn't really speak on it. I expect that that's the same strategy here. I could not find a sentence that he'd uttered on this. I, I, I searched mm-hmm. through, you know, his, his press releases and, and Google and Twitter archives. And I couldn't find anything he'd said on it. McCarthy, you know, I, I, who knows, right? Then you have this next level. You've got Eric Greitens, all these people running for Senate. Uh, Greitens has been in Arizona. He's, he's the, um, you know, former disgraced Missouri governor who's, who's leading the Senate primary there. I'm sure, you know, our crazy Ohio and North Carolina senators. I, I, I think that you will see a lot of, Look, we need to bring this to other states. We need to bring this to Pennsylvania. We need to look at Michigan, Wisconsin. They, they've yeah, raised, some, right. you know, I, I think the just asking questions mindset. And that allows this stuff to keep, you know, to keep percolating and to keep continuing on. And I just, I guess the point that I was trying to make is there will be a, a significant chunk of people that will see the Arizona result and will think, see, yeah. Donald oh, no. Trump won. See, but. we really won. This was really stolen from us. And if people really believe that and if they're enabled by uh, you know, their elected officials who are saying, yep, we're, we're going to keep looking into this. We're going to now look into this in Pennsylvania. And they really think that this country is being stolen from them and that their liberties have been stolen from them and that the presidency has been stolen from them. Then like – the the actions on January six are kind of logical. No, I say right? I've been making this point. If you if you put yourself in their mindsets, you understand. You know, would you be willing to fight for your country if you believed all of these things? And many of these people believe all of this. They, it has been force fed to them. It has been you know put into their into their their heads with you know IVs. Um, they believe it, and they will believe all this other stuff. And they you know search for bamboo, just asking questions. Right. We're just asking questions. And will there be a single MAGA type Republican who will go on Fox News to say, hey, guys, uh, let's look ahead in the future. This is all bullshit. This did not happen. This is not the this is not the case. Joe Biden won. And the answer, of course, is no. So no, there will be no push. slap him down. <clears throat> Well, like you know, that. he's going to go back and start doing rallies again. And all these guys are still scared of him, even though, he, you know, he doesn't have any outlet. He's shut down Creed's blog and, you know, he doesn't have Twitter, but he still he'll, he'll start there, going. You know, they're still there. afraid of him. Right. They're still afraid. Go, go so, no, I, I I don't think anybody will go out. Well, will say that this is batshit crazy. And see, that, that you need to stop. 
There you go again, Tim. There you go. You and Charlie Sykes, you're being all hysterical and alarmist and everything. <laughs> Part of the problem is, is that at the, at the moment you go, am I being too hysterical and alarmist? You get more reports that indicate that it was, in fact, maybe worse than you thought it was. And you yes. knew you thought it was bad. So here we have the breaking story, New York Times story, new emails detailing how uh, Trump pressured the Justice Department to take up his fake election fraud claims. And they, they began sending emails to Jeffrey Rosen, who was the number two guy at Justice Department. Uh, they sent emails to him even before he took over from Bill Barr, and uh, they wanted him to embrace Trump's claims of voter fraud at least 10 days before Rosen assumed the role of acting attorney general. Uh, these are new emails disclosed by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. And he, he came under continued pressure from the White House, including Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, to launch a formal investigation. And Mark Meadows actually forwarded him emails about that absolutely crazy idea about Italian satellites flipping votes and everything. It was so bad that one of the top officials in the Department of Justice you know, described it as pure insanity. Yes, pure insanity from people who actually were running the country a little while ago. And so it's like this was serious. This was not just they really thought that they were going to overturn the election. I mean, this is the thing. It's like for people who thought, oh, it's a grift. Oh, it's, oh it, it was a grift, of course. It's only a grift <laughs> or it's only a thing or or this is just about Donald Trump's feelings. This These people, you know, they bought into the most deranged possible timelines and scenarios, didn't they? What is it about those crafty Italians, Charlie? You know, I mean, they, Italians. The, the Italians have been at the center of all these MAGA theories going back to 2015. And I, there, there must be, this is something where I feel like of course, if I really strong. wanted to, yeah, <laughs> if I could do a deep dive to be like, who was the original person that, fi that, that fingered the Italians? Because they, um, you know, there was a, there was this we need, big we, thing. We, we, we need to now have the, the, the bed of the Godfather playing in the background now. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the Godfather, because obviously because the, it's it's the, it's all it always goes back to the Italians, right? The, those dastardly Italians. Yeah, I mean, this was it was in Obamagate. They also were saying that it was the Italians that were you know part of the Christopher Steele. I mean, this dates back to all of that nonsense. Remember when you know it's always projection with these guys. Um, you know, it was in 2016 that they claimed that they were the ones that were the victims of a coup attempt by oh, yeah. the sitting president who tried to steal the election for Hillary Clinton. This was all completely fabricated nonsense, and then they went on to do exactly what they you know claimed that they were victims of four years later um but yeah no the italians were always uh, always at the core of it I, I this is the chief of staff you know and and the the deputy attorney general again it's like it's hard to wrap your head around just like the, the people holding the most serious jobs in the government um, were the ones that were kind of flirting with this notion that, you know, the New Mexico election was stolen by Italian satellites. I mean, like, how yeah. do you even how do you read that and then go, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and forward this over to the DOJ. Um, I, you know, like what what Four it just shows years. how. Yeah. I mean, just how you know how how warped you get, you know, being inside the this this mega bubble but you know I, I think the interesting things that the story is just again the deliberateness of it you know it's trump asking his assistant to to put to push doj to file these filings they don't say who it is it was written by an outside attorney so you assume it's probably Sidney powell um you know so 
pushing the DOJ to, you know, file this with the Supreme Court. It confirms what we all suspected about the firing of the prosecutor in Georgia um, over the fact that they weren't willing to, you know, challenge the election to to Donald Trump's liking. And it, it is, you know, uh, it, all of the, you know, kind of past American scandals all wrapped into one and then put another layer of just cuckoo craziness on top of it. And and it was, you know, a multifaceted, right? I mean, it was boobish and ham-handed, but it was multifaceted. And, and well, you know, he was it was a deliberate and multifaceted attempt. And I think Ann Applebaum pointed that out on Twitter. And that is the key thing. And this is what all of the, you know, current sitting Republicans want to hide behind is a pretend that this was this was not what it was, which was well, a multifaceted effort to, to steal the election. And, and let's just you know reiterate here: we're not talking about history. We're talking about something that's ongoing, something that is going that is in front of us. That that the shit show is still ahead of us. It will dominate the twenty twenty two election. It, are you old enough to remember when they uh, when, when they ousted Liz Cheney because she wouldn't move on? <laughs> Think about that. She just kept talking about this. She wouldn't move on to what we want to talk about. And of course. They're uh, they're they're locked into all of this. So uh, Mitch McConnell over the weekend uh, announced that, uh, that that if, in fact, there was an opening for a Supreme Court in 2024, actually probably in 2023, and he is running the Senate. No way that no, no way that he's going to advance. I mean, Merrick Garland um, turns out to be the great model of his career. I mean, he, this is the one thing that he did that he is the most proud of, and he has every intention of doing it again. So you have a Republican Senate next year, and uh, <clears throat> Justice Breyer waits until after the election. Uh, no way that Joe Biden is ever going to get a Supreme Court nominee through a Republican Senate. Not a surprise, right? No, not a surprise. Um, but I, it does have real ramifications. I, you know, I think that Breyer... Um, is is obviously you know being stubborn um, and for good reason. I nobody wants to feel like they're being pushed out. Um, you know, at the end of a of, of a you know career that they're proud of. Um, but I, I and he is going to you know um, be uh, the target of a lot of ire um, for good reason on the left if he does not step down next year. I mean, Mitch McConnell just laid it out right for him. So I, I think, you know, that obviously is hanging over all this. A potential Supreme Court nomination hearing will just be another, you know, thing to add to the pile of a, of a very big pile that's getting backed up uh, in the Senate right now, uh, potentially, or, you know, this massive controversy had, if he, if he doesn't um, decide to step down before the election. You know, the other thing that I just think looking at this and obviously, you know, I, Mitch is just kind of Machiavellian nihilism is is you know frustrating for those of us mm-hmm. kind of norms loving centrists more than frustrating. It's you know it's it's you know it, it is maddening. But but like this, I, I think is a reflection of now where we are, right? And it's hard to really kind of imagine Schumer not doing the same thing if yeah. the shoe is on the other foot, right? Six years from now, and, and you would and I, you would have to understand it, like almost, right? And it's like they did this to Merrick Garland, then they jammed through Amy Coney Barrett, and so now it feels like this is where we're at, you know, where it already felt like every SCOTUS seat was a life or death match. Um, 
uh, you know, where every card is pulled. And and now it feels like we're at the logical conclusion of that, which is that a, a president of one party cannot get through a Senate nominee if the other party holds the Senate. And that is just fundamentally broken. And this is where I get a little, you know, our friends on the principled right you know, who, who, who refuse to rethink anything, you know, when they, you know, say that it's the Democrats that are busting norms when there are these proposals about Supreme Court reform. It's I just sort of look at this and like, how can you not support at least some kind of reform to this, this is clearly a broken process. Well, that's because the spiral is is that once you begin breaking norms and it becomes a habit, then are you surprised when other people uh, follow that as a pattern? Okay, so speaking of breaking norms, speaking of breaking norms, uh, we love norms. President, well, President of the United States <laughs> is in Europe right now. He is not in America. And during a press conference he gave, I can't remember whether this is the G7 or where it is. It's not really important because it's, it's you know, um, not on American soil. Uh, is make, make some comments about what's going on with the Republican Party. Let me play a little bit of, uh, of Joe Biden talking about uh, the, the Trumpification of the Republican Party. So I, I think it, it is a shock and surprise that what's happened in terms of the consequence of President Trump's phony populism has has happened. And it is disappointing that so many of my Republican colleagues in the Senate, who I know know better, have been reluctant to take on, for example, an, an investigation because they're worried about being primaried. But at the end of the day, we've been through periods like this in American history before where there has been this reluctance to take a chance on your reelection because of the nature of your party's politics at the moment. I think this is passing. I don't mean easily passing. That's why it's so important that I succeed in my agenda. The agenda, whether it's dealing with the vaccine, the economy, infrastructure, it's important that we demonstrate we can make progress. Okay, so um, the pearls were clutched about the president um, abroad engaging in political speech um, because that used to be a norm. I think it was a norm in 1958, was last seen in 1958. But in any case, uh, pearls were clutched about the president uh, who uh, uh, violated the norm of politics stopping at the water's edge. Your thoughts? Were you deeply offended Boy, as well, Mr. Boy, that was some Mr. tough Miller? stuff there, Charlie. I don't know. That was some real serious norm breaking. I can see why... Uh, the apologists for Donald Trump were, were offended by that. Um, you know, that is some pretty, pretty tough stuff there. You know, Republicans are reluctant to investigate the coup that just happened in our country, the coup attempt six months ago because of the former president who incited it and their fears of the pri of primary. I, I, I don't know how our, our democracy could survive a president saying that outside the water's edge. Um, I, no, I, that, that was, if anything, mild. And the idea that the, Don, that, that the current president is not supposed to address um, at, at a meeting of world powers the first non-peaceful transfer of power um, in our country, uh, uh, you know, is is... I just think uh, fantasy, I, you know, sometimes you just have to deal with what, what happened in reality. And what happened is that the Republican party tried to steal an election. So well, if anything, the, I, I thought he was mild. Yeah. If, if, if you're the president of the United States right now, and you're talking about the uh, renewing democracy, I don't know how you do not bring this up and how this doesn't become relevant, but I guess if, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to dial back to, to a, to a different age, but, uh, the, the, okay, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to move on to something else. So if you had something else. Well, I want to uh, just ask you about this because, you know, right now there is this new narrative uh, that uh, the Democrats are experiencing this crack up in, in Washington that uh, the Biden agenda is is in fact imperiled. I mean, he ended there you know, saying how imperative it is that he shows that it can work. And this has been a theme from Biden and others is that if you want to uh, if you want to protect liberal, you know, constitutional democracy, you have to deliver. You have to show that it actually works, that it is not a completely broken system. But it does not appear that things are working right now in in Washington. Now, the question is whether or not what we're seeing now over the infrastructure bill is just the usual kabuki dance back and forth, uh, negotiating yeah. between the moderates and the progressive left and everything. And they'll, you know, at the end of the day, they'll come up with something. But give me your sense of this, because it does seem that after months of, shall we say, inflated expectations, that there's kind of a brutal reality check unfolding in the last couple of weeks. Or you so. can disagree. I mean, no, I, I, I no, I agree with that. I mean, uh, look, I, I think that you know there was um, maybe false hope um, was certainly something that some of us shared, uh, uh, you know, at, at, on various bulwark platforms about the possibility of getting Republicans on board. And I think that there was also some false hope about being able to jam things through a fifty-fifty Senate. I, you know, I mean, a fifty-fifty Senate is tough. I, you know, Obama had, you know, had trouble getting things through a 59 person you know democratic senate when they couldn't get the 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 60th vote from the republicans so you know you lose one person i you know everybody remembers the whole you know nebraska kickback or whatever it was that, that obama had to do i mean it was I not that. easy and he and he had more more room to to, to wiggle um than, than biden does so uh we, we do have a pretty you know broken democratic system in washington be, besides you know all this all the things that we've been talking to about the election challenges just a sense of you know not you know being able to to solve problems efficiently that is that is a problem that carries to these other questions that he's obviously going to get asked about when he's on the world stage, by the way. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think that there is still, you know, there's still ongoing conversations on the crime side of things. I think that there's still a two path option on the infrastructure side of things where maybe, you know, you can get um, uh, a smaller package through like push, push by Republicans and then, you know, do something else via reconciliation. Uh, but you know, it's going to be a slog. And, and here's the thing, Biden, didn't passed his for you know that COVID relief thing very very quickly. Um, if you look back at look at Trump's uh, you know has fails on Obamacare doesn't get tax cuts passed until his second year. Um, you know this was uh, similar the similar path um, uh, with Obama uh, with Obama and then you know also with Bush right. I, this stuff doesn't all happen in the first year all the time. I think that there's this. You know, like kind of CW. It's like, oh, the first hundred days you get things done. It's kind of like, well, uh, this is usually kind of the pace of how things work, right? You get a few things through in the first hundred days, and then you know you bear down for the slog. So I, I don't know. We need to get into panic mode, but but sure, expectations are too high. I, I do. If you just don't mind, I do want to go back to one thing on G seven though, because I, I uh, and and I just don't know how he breaks through on this, but but. Um, you know, one thing that I thought that Biden did in G7 that was really good, that didn't get a lot of attention, is he pushed the other European members to sign this joint statement pushing back on China. And it seemed like he went into that meeting with 
his big ask, you know, is starting to get these European countries thinking again about an alliance um, and working together uh, against China's malign influence. And you know, they, they're they're pointing out what was happening, um, you know, obviously with the Uyghurs and and you know uh, uh, China's other kind of encroachment um, into into Western areas and ways that that. Um, you know, is, is is having a chilling effect on speech and all this other sort of stuff. I I was encouraged that he said that he he said that. I do feel it got like a little bit lost in the coverage. And you know, earlier when you're uh, when you were talking about the Daily Wire, you know, I, I've been wa- yeah. monitoring the right wing coverage of this, and they all obsessed. Our listeners probably don't even know this, but that Biden mixed up Syria and Libya during one of his during one oh, of no. the press conferences. Oh, yeah, oh, no. this is like wall to wall coverage. If you Google, if you search. Twitter, Biden, G7. It's just all of the, you know, Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and Chuck Woolery and all these crazy people like put in this clip about how he has dementia because he mixed up Syria and Libya. And so to me, I think the big question and the big challenge for them is not just getting something to the Senate, but how can he message about how they're doing the right thing you know, on on pushing back in China and not cede the turf on this to to the Republicans, and and I, I think that's another you know big question and challenge for them over the next kind of year and a half. It it is a big uh, question and challenge. I think there's a lot of there, there's a bunch of challenges there. I'm not trying to be negative here, but um, you know, you have the the the, the question of of inflation. You have the problem of uh, urban violence out there. Uh, whether or not you're going to have gridlock, whether uh, they're going to be able to deliver all of those challenges. But again, it's early. One of the things that seems to be happening this this week, though, is that a lot of the differences between the moderate wing of the republic, I'm sorry, of the Democratic Party, and of the progressive wing, which had been papered over uh, rather effectively for the first six months and now are kind of breaking out. Um, I thought it was actually pretty impressive how they had kept everybody in line in the House of Representatives, even though they only had like a what, four or five vote margin, uh, keep every, you know, kept everybody in line in the Senate up until up until now. But now you have Bernie Sanders saying he's going to he's a hard uh, no on a bipartisan bill. I don't know whether that kills it or not. You have uh, some of the, uh, the, the, you know, the squad who might go along with him in the House. So it's hard to imagine how Nancy Pelosi gets it through over there. Um, it is going to be an interesting moment for this party. And I guess every time I've raised this in the past, people have said, oh, but Charlie, what you don't understand is how prag- ultimately pragmatic the Democratic Party is and how how clearly they see the need to um you know, uh, to succeed and and, and to not uh, cede power to the the Trumpist right. So at the end of the day, they'll get this right. I wish I shared their confidence. I don't know. I mean, I I I hope they understand what the stakes are. I hope they understand what it means to have Republicans sweep back into power in in Congress. What a uh, a second Trumpian term would be. Yeah. I well, I, I don't. So here's one. I, I generally agree with you that I, I have concerns about the fact that I think that the, there's a Democratic navel gazing about these sort of internal fights that is hopefully, you know, being contained to, you know, right now as we're 18 months away from an election. And, and obviously everybody has policy priorities and it's a new administration and et cetera, et cetera, um, that, that, I, that I'm 
hoping, you know, they can look to to Biden, who I think has been pretty good about this, which is focusing on sort of doing popular stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like been by the key to Biden's success, right? I think he's focused on saying and doing popular things dating back to the beginning of his campaign, right? And not getting, um, you know, stuck, you know, uh, circling the drain on all these various internecine fights. Um, at, when, when you look at the, like the senators and your point on Sanders and now I, I guess Markey and others are saying, well, they won't vote for it if it doesn't have cap and trade. I, I don't, yeah, it's hard to tell whether that's not just posturing. Well, that's um, right. That, yeah. I think yeah. that a lot of them see Mansion getting all the attention. They're like, oh, you know, wait, hey, it's a 50, 50 Senate. Too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I could make, I could become 49, uh, you know, as well. And so, you know, I, I can throw my elbows around and try to gain some leverage or even maybe just gain some media clips over, um, you know, saying that I'm going to stake my ground on this issue of interest. So yeah, I, I guess I think that that's something to monitor whether that, you know, makes governing impossible um, or whether that's just, you know, a little bit of posture mid negotiation posturing here to you know get get mansion out of the spotlight quite no i i i think that may be right which is why i think that you know take a deep breath about this this back and forth you know what's what's going on this this is part of the dance of of posturing of uh, of, of saying you know i am i i have clout as well and you know ultimately joe biden's gonna have to get everybody in the room and say y- you want to be the one who basically torpedoes my presidency because i mean boy the narrative would be awfully negative but um, let me switch to something a little bit more positive because you have written and have talked about this before, the hot summer that we are about to have, uh, especially with coming out of the pandemic. So I was over the weekend down in Chicago. My, my son was graduating from uh, Evanston, but we stayed in, in Chicago. It was amazing. I, I know that other people have been in this, you know, New York is back and everything. In Chicago, Every human being was out on the streets. The beaches were packed. The parks were full. Did the river walk down in downtown Chicago filled with people and boats and people were you could it, it felt like the entire downtown of Chicago had become this massive street festival. It was like Mardi Gras in the Midwest. And you could get that sense of the I mean every outdoor restaurant, you know, absolutely full on a Sunday night which is, I guess, showing my Midwestern thing, you know, it's a school. But, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, in, in just in terms of the breakout and the, the pent up, to, you know, desire to get out into the world, uh, to be around other people, to see people's faces. It was really something over the weekend. And I, I, I do think it uh, gives you an indication of, of how this, this summer is, you know, the, I, I think there's going to be some inherent baseline optimism for the summer. Which, yeah. which, you've, which you, hoping, you've been predicting for some time. I have. And, and this is today. We're today, June 15th. Everybody, you know, uh, play the play the cheers and the bells and whistles. But California is finally open today. So I'm hoping uh, to see uh, the, the hot Joe, hot vac summer come to the Bay Area this weekend, as you did in Chicago. Because that hasn't quite been my experience out here. It also is a little different. Uh, it's a very outdoorsy state. And, you know, summertime here is a little sleepier as people go to Tahoe and to wine country and all this. But um, uh, I, I do think that that there is really something to that. And here's the other area that I'll add optimism on, not just sort of the inner human optimism and and the fact that I think that a lot of people, you know, you, you do build up these grievances when you're alone, right? When you're not seeing other people, even if you're just talking on Zoom and text and 
you start to imagine what other people are thinking in their own head and you get a little bit bitter, right? And you're thinking, oh, you know, you see what they're posting I, on their I social media. I have no media. idea what you mean. But <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's just a, there just is a little bit of this that happens when you're alone and isolated. So I, I think that, that there will be that sort of inner human positivity. The other thing, and Fromm has been pushing this, which is... David Fromm. Yeah, David Fromm is... I, I think that I, I'm, you know, not an economist. So I'm just a, you know, observer of the human condition. Um, but, uh, you know, th- I think that there's good reason to be worried about inflation. I'm glad that Biden has his eye on it. But but when you look at the numbers and when you kind of look at what's happening like now with lumber coming back down over the last few days, it might be, po- you know, we, we came out of this huge shock, right, of a 14-month shock where our supply chains are down and people's behavior had changed dramatically and where people lived change and how they did their lives change. And, and so just – you know, even though it's been kind of gradual, relatively quickly reverting back or reverting to this new new normal where some things are similar to how they used to be and other things are permanently changed, like that, it just takes a time for the market to adjust to all that, right? And and I and I do think that there are some other signs, you know, economically that things are actually going pretty good, and and that you know by the time we get to you know, the end of the summer, um, you know, maybe, you know, some of the, you know, uh, uh, things that jump out as um, being, you know, uh, concerningly inflationary are, are not so bad. And if, if you just look at the price numbers that came out last in, in the report last month, you know, the, the, the big drivers of inflation were like, airline tickets and you know rental housing and you know what i mean that's just stuff that is like logically was going to you know become more expensive so anyway i i, I don't i don't want to be pollyannish about it and i think that they need to keep an eye on it but i think that in addition to that sort of interpersonal sort of um you know uh america's back summer i think that there will that, that we also could be you know on the cusp of 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 really a positive period of economic growth, you know, who knows how long that lasts uh, as well. Could, could be. And, and now, of course, let me be the downer here for just, okay, just, please just do. a moment. I, I, I think the politically, one of the big dangers is this uh, explosion in violent crime. Uh, we're already finding out that, you know, 2020 was the deadliest gun violence year in decades. So far, 2021 is uh, worse. Large cities, these numbers. Okay. Now, I had this rosy picture of Chicago, but Chicago's um, murder rate last year rose by 55%. It was high to begin with. New York City up by 45%. Los Angeles by 38%. Uh, Seattle, Memphis, Austin, Phoenix all saw murder totals rise by more than 40%. Now there's a lot of different explanations. There's poverty, there's COVID, there's drugs. But you know, some of this has to do with the, the correlation, maybe not causation, between the explosion of murders and changes in policing policy, you know, police backing off from certain uh, policies, you know, after in the wake of George Floyd's death, like we saw in Minneapolis a few years ago. I guess this is one of those issues where I do think it poses a threat to Democrats and progressives who cannot be, cannot appear to downplay it or to ignore it. Um, and let's face it, a lot of these cities are still run by Democrats. And these then these numbers are really disturbing, and particularly if you see, uh, you know, the the rhetoric and I'll get like many, many emails about this. But there is still the rhetoric about defunding police at a time when average people are looking around saying defund the police. What the fuck are you talking about? I want I want a cop on my block because things are scary here. 
Yeah, look, I, th- I think this could be, and uh, so here, here's just we'll just be you know the rose eye shade glasses Tim uh, episode. Um, this is uh, not your normal you know, self here. Well, this you know, is I was out, I was out, I was in D- Washington last week. We were partying. Mm-hmm. I got to hug JVL. I got this. I went to the gay bar. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I just I'm sort of I'm still on this. The, I'm still the, on this. The, high. These are these are separate incidents. I just want. Um, they are separate incidents. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I, but look at but the Democrats if they're smart have an opportunity here because uh, and, and being smart means not listening to what the people on their Twitter mentions say that they should yes. do. Because uh, if you look at what's happening in this New York primary, and I don't know if Eric Adams is actually going to win, but Eric Adams is uh, the, is, a, is the black uh, president of the, you know, Brooklyn borough president. And he's running, you know, not on like, you know, Giuliani broken windows law and order, but on a pretty, you know, for a Democrat law and order, uh, platform, right? Which is that that we do need to, you know, empower police. We need to take care of the crime issue, um, and and he is winning this yeah. this mayor primary. I, and I think that if he wins, or even if he comes in a close second, that should be a big wake up call to the left. Like this is not, you know, a Democrat running on this platform for governor of Arizona. Right? I mean, this is this is New York City. This is where all the the Brooklyn socialists are supposed to be. And um and 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 Eric Adams um I think is is very much showing the Democrats what even their own voters, maybe not the loudest ones on social media, want. Now, what, this doesn't yeah. yeah. But so, but what's happening in in your 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 neck of the woods? You're in Oakland. Um, yeah. well, what's happening in San Francisco? I mean, I I was seeing. <laughs> we should ignore Twitter, but I was noticing on Twitter another one of these videos of of a guy with a bicycle going into a Walgreens, filling up in a giant garbage bag with stuff. The security guard and the other employees are standing around videotaping him, and they let him just ride out with all this stuff. Walgreens and others have been saying that. We're closing down stores in places like San Francisco because we just it we we can't absorb the level of of petty yeah. crime there. So I mean, what is happening in cities like this? Because you you have a very different approach to enforcing the law, sort of the opposite of the broken windows theory of of, of law enforcement. And people, at least my sense is that there are a lot of there's a backlash brewing about this. Yeah, there is. And 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 here's and and there has to be a sort of smart reformist approach to it. Right? And this is I think this is a natural result of you know, of, of, you know, there was sort of an overemphasis going one direction. Um, and, you know, with, with policing that was too aggressive, where uh, marginalized communities felt like, uh, rightly, that they were being targeted. Um, and then you have, you know, sort of an overemphasis, you know, the pendulum swings too far back the other way. Um, and, and that's happening in San Francisco, right, where they're, they're basically not enforcing, you know, petty crimes. And you, I mean, the obvious unintended consequences are, are associated with that. Now, I, I think that the actually the mayor here in Oakland and San Francisco are both pretty reasonable center left Democrats who are dealing with like insane, you know, city councils. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I, I think that both of them are trying to, you know, figure out how to how to deal with this balance and are, are 
you know, doing okay. Like, I, I think that the, you know, the, what you see, you know, on social media and on the conservative media about San Francisco is not like really the lived reality of San Francisco. I think the problem of San Francisco is right now is they've got to, they've got to deal with the petty crime situation. Right. And, and I think that what is happening in Walgreens is a real problem and they need to fig- figure out how, how do you police in a way that does not, you know, discriminate, that does not put people at unnecessary, you know, risk to their health and safety while at the same time uh, taking control taking control back of the neighborhoods and making sure that 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 you know petty crime doesn't run rampant I, I think that that's you know, the, going to be a big challenge, right? Because just like letting dudes run into Walgreens and steal whatever they want um, isn't okay. And just like the uptick in, in deadly violence is a huge problem that we need to deal with. Uh, you know, I mean, police shooting, uh, 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 you know, dozens of individuals a year is also not okay. And there's a no, different I'm sort just, of weight to state violence. No, no, I know I'm not saying you said no, that, you, no, you that, that's that why Andrew Sullivan thing. But yeah, just really quick, right. just on the Sullivan thing, yeah. like, he read my complaint. I think he made some good points about how the Democrats need to take this seriously and that a life is a life. If black lives matter, a black life that gets killed by a criminal is not any less valuable than one that lives by a cop that gets killed by a cop. But we have to understand in a society, you know, that state violence does have a different weight to it. And, you know, Sullivan in the article sort of just kind of brushes away. I'm going from memory. I don't remember yeah. what the numbers are, but it's like, you know, only 80 people have been killed by cops this year. <laughs> like yeah. eight. I mean, 80 is, a, is way too many, right? Still, you know, even even when you're saying that we've, we've overcorrected in the wrong direction, um, you know, I mean, in Canada, they don't kill 80 in a decade. Um, uh, uh, police don't kill 80 people in a decade. So, you know, Vancouver has figured it out. Toronto's figured it out. I, um, obviously, there's a different gun laws and different culture and other things at play there. But um uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that um, I, I think that th- there needs to be kind of a reformist approach. And I do think that, by the way, of all the things, as crazy as it sounds, that, that the Senate might actually come to a deal on, um, you know, some some police, police reform, reform might, might be one of them. If, un- unless they want to be totally obstructionist. OK, one last comment on the on the reopening of summer. And this is in the category of things I don't understand, but actually kind of do. But let's let's just take a step back. We know that America is coming back. People are coming out. People are, you know, going back to work. They're going back to school. They're going out, you know, seeing human beings again. And this is largely a result of the incredible vaccination success we've had, which is limited in some states, you know, particularly in, in some of the in some of the red states. But you could imagine in a rational universe where uh, the the Trump folks and Republicans would be really anxious to give credit, at least some credit to Donald Trump for the vaccines, right? They could be saying, hey, thank you, Donald Trump, for developing the vaccine, as opposed to the position they're actually taking. The position that that Republicans and Trumpists are taking with the vaccine is actually really counterintuitive when you think about it, right? As opposed to denigrating it, shouldn't they be having signs, you know, thank you, Donald Trump, for doing this? But it shows how deeply ingrained the sort of anti science tribalism is that they can't bring themselves to do something that is manifestly in their political interest to do. Yeah, I mean, Laura Ingram was still talking about hydroxychloroquine last exactly. night. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, right. It's like, Take what? Take the win. Or at least, gra- look, you know, to seize the credit, maybe, you know, more credit than you deserve, but it's not a completely irrational point. You know, Operation Warp Speed, I mean, yes, they screwed it up, but these people have taken credit for all sorts of things they don't deserve credit for. In this particular case, it's so weird 
to see the fact that our lives are being transformed by this vaccine and they continue to distance themselves from it. And Lord it is, knows and where this is going. The stalling out of of the of people getting vaccinated in, in red states is is really, you know, concerning. It's probably not gonna be a problem this summer. It's a delayed problem that might crop back up again in the fall. Hopefully, uh, there's some signs that it's that's just younger people that aren't getting vaccinated. And so that is gonna, you know, have some, you know, prevent us from stamping this out, but but maybe the death numbers might not follow, which would be which would be nice. Um, obviously, not that there aren't other problems that are associated with that. But um, uh, you know, that like, look, I, it, it would be great for them to do them. And, and, and here's the thing, and I think some of us have written about this and talked about this, but in a different, you know, universe, it is really, a, it could be a MAGA, you know, thing to point to about America's greatness and America first. I, I mean, it, look at, look at the failure of the Chinese vaccines. And if you look at the country's that have accepted the Chinese vaccines, they're having horrible outcomes right now, like Chile. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, in places where, um, you know, Pfizer and Moderna and even AstraZeneca, et cetera, are being used, um, uh, uh, the numbers are getting much, much better, um, obviously, including here. And, and this really should be a, you know, put up, put your American flag pin on and turn on the Lee Greenwood and be like, hell yeah, America, we did this again. You know, we, it Absolutely. was maybe too late. It wasn't perfect. It was a little rocky, but like, you know, it was, we solved this through American, you know, and, and working with also, you know, our allies, uh, in ingenuity and innovation, uh, but, but they're just, they, they can't get there. But see, that's, that's the tell. This is actually an interesting point. This, this, this yeah. is the tell that, that yes, that, that sort of success and pride should really be motivating. But, but unfortunately, MAGA World's fuel is not pride. It's grievance and it's anger and it's paranoia. They are right. much they have much more energy into we are being victimized than that. Look what we have done and how great and wonderful we are. This is what makes America good and great is the fact that we are vaccinating millions of other people. And it's working in our interest economically, politically, geopolitically, in every possible sense. It's, it's helping us out. So, well, but we you don't live in that universe. We don't. We, we do, do not. not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's leave it on a, on a high note. Uh, Tim Miller, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Anytime. We'll catch you next time, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.